you have a Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 22. We're going to be picking up right where we left off last week. As you're turning to Luke 22, let me just mention uh, something that's already been said. I'll say again, next weekend is Easter. And we would love for you to be thinking of who you might invite to church on Easter weekend. It's been my experience that people um, who are typically opposed or just kind of indifferent to church might be more open to attending on Easter morning. So think about that. Be praying who you might invite to church. Uh, Jason will be preaching from Luke 24, the story of Jesus' resurrection, fittingly, on Easter morning. We also have a Good Friday service that will begin at 7 p.m. It will last maybe just less than an hour. Uh, we're going to be reading a number of passages that from Luke's gospel that speak of what took place on Good Friday so many years ago. And we'll be singing songs that magnify the beauty and wonder and gravity of the cross of Christ. So we pick up this morning's passage in Luke 22. We're going to begin in verse 39, and you're going to hear about a certain cup. Now, as Jason was preaching a few weeks ago, we were moving through the Passover meal passage, where Jesus spoke of a certain cup, the cup of the Passover meal that Jesus said we should now understand as his blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. That was a certain cup. This passage speaks of a different but very related cup. Follow along with me as I read from Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 39 through verse 46. Then we'll pray that God would be our teacher. And he, that is Jesus, came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we do need you to give us faith and open our eyes. Lord, on Good Friday, so many years ago, really, I guess what was Thursday evening, Jesus left the upper room and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Great things were being weighed. Lord, I pray that you would wake us up both to the gravity and the beauty and wonder that is the cross of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' awesome name. Amen. 
two years ago, my wife and I, or almost two years ago, we were in the hospital, Harrisburg Hospital, as uh, she was delivering our last child, Salem Robert Verbacek, and all of our children were born via cesarean, se- or cesarean section, or C-section, right, as we normally call it. And, and, and not to be too graphic, but that's when surgically they open up a, a woman's abdomen and deliver the child. So it's a big surgery. And, and during one or two of my wife's previous C-sections, uh, there had been a moment here or there uh, where we kind of remembered, oh yeah, <laughs> surgery is a big deal. It, it's a delicate thing, sometimes a dangerous thing. By and large, they went very well, but there was a moment or two there where we were reminded of that. But I can say with Salem, uh, we had a number of those reminders. Uh, with Salem, my wife didn't deliver in the regular OR room, or excuse me, the regular delivery rooms. They moved her to the OR rooms um, so that they could have access to more equipment, they told us. Okay, are you going to need that? <laughs> we wondered. And at one point, um, it seemed like there was a lot of people in the room, and my wife, um, you know, laying down, looks up to me and says, how many people are in here? And I look around and count, and I'm like, there's 15 people in here. And there's a sign on the wall that said only eight were allowed. Oh, okay. I wouldn't say we went into that, we approached Salem's delivery, his his C-section delivery, lackadaisical. Um, In the days leading up to his birth, I, you know, my wife was anxious as anybody would be for any surgery. Uh, But I can tell you there was a whole new level of sobriety when we realized that the medical professionals, the people who know the most, had doubled, perhaps even tripled their precautions. Thankfully, everything went very well. Actually, it was one of Um, the more smooth deliveries. But I think something like this is happening in Luke chapter 22. I wouldn't go so far as to say that the disciples were lackadaisical, but it does seem that they are unaware of all that is going on around them. And I think that's because of their self-reliance. If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that previously, just just a few moments prior to the scene that we're looking at here, the disciples had argued about who is the greatest. And then there was Peter, so confident uh, in his assertion of his loyalty to Jesus. He says, Lord, even if everybody falls away, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'll follow you, with you into prison or even if it means death, he says. And it's this, our self-reliance, that can make us spiritually drowsy when we should be the most alert. We'll get into this more, but we're going to see in this passage that the one who is most aware of what's going on is also the one who's most troubled. As the passage opens up, we should Note the continuation of a theme that's been, I think, happening for several passages. In fact, it's actually a a theme that is a great theme across all of the scriptures. But we see it especially on display in the last few chapters, in the last few passages of every gospel account. In Luke chapter 22, there is a singular focus on Jesus as the only hero of the story. He's the only hero of the story. Jason last week very helpfully pointed something out, but but I want to bring it up again to draw even more attention to it. As Jason said last week, one of the reasons 
We can believe the Bible is an accurate account of the story of God is because the men and women who we often think should be the most heroic often look very unheroic or sometimes even worse than unheroic. Say it another way. We're helped to believe the Bible is a divinely inspired book because if humans were ultimately behind what got included and what didn't get included, then we would not have made the closest followers look so bad. Say it another way. The disciples often look dumb and cowardly. And if we were going to create a religion, we would want to make us look less dumb and cowardly and dependent than we really are. That's helpful to note. But I'm re-highlighting this because I don't think it's just a passing observation that's helpful to point out. I think it is those things. But I would actually say this is an intentionally emphasized. During the last passages of every gospel account, each author seems to focus in singularly on Jesus as the only hero of the story. I mean, that's true across all of Scripture, on all of the gospels, but it seems to be prominent at the end of each gospel. The religious leaders are certainly not the heroes. In passage after passage, in fact, all of Tuesday, if we were plotting out Holy Week, the last week of Jesus' life, we have confrontation after confrontation where the, say it this way, the duplicity of the religious teachers is exposed. Passage after passage, we hear them speak of love of God out one side of their mouth and see them deny it with their actions. So the religious leaders are not the heroes of the story. But neither are the disciples. As that started to become more clear as Tuesday turned to Wednesday, turns to Thursday, turns to Friday. One type, one disciple, we're told, will betray Jesus. Another disciple is going to deny him three times. All of them argue about who is the greatest. And then as Jesus, this is last week's passage, is giving his final instructions about how they should be ready for the difficult things that are coming upon them. It seems like none of them are able to grasp what Jesus is really saying to him such that when Jesus, like his last lines are exasperatedly, it's enough. (laughs) And he sort of just walks out and they follow him across the Kindron Valley up to the Mount of Olives and then we begin our passage in verse 39 with Jesus a little exasperated at his disciples. If this were a play on a stage, the lights would be dimming and there would be a singular spotlight focused in on Jesus as the only hero of the story. But we also see that he's a troubled hero. Look again with me at verses 41, 42, 43, and 44. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Many times throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus making prayer a priority. 
Prayer was such an important part of his life that Luke can even speak of it in this passage as his custom. But way back in Luke chapter 5, during a hectic season of ministry, we're told that Jesus often withdrew to pray. But this time, here in Luke 22, here on the Mount of Olives, things just feel different. The passage says he is in agony. And he prays, quote, more earnestly. And that he is sweating so profusely that it's, well, it's like he has an open wound pouring on the ground. And the plain reading of this passage is that the suffering is real. It's not a pantomime. There's no lip syncing. He's in real agony. This should strike us as odd. If we were alive at the time of Christ, we'd be well aware of stories where martyrs went boldly to their death. For example, in the Jewish books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, which tell the Hanukkah story, which took place some 200 years before Jesus in this moment we're looking at here, that those stories tell the story of many brave men and women who courageously give up their lives. But here, Jesus, shall we say, he seems reluctant? This is odd. And many of us have heard the agony of this scene preached before, and many of us have probably read through the Gospels a few dozen times. But if we were reading Luke's Gospel for the first time, as perhaps some of you are, this passage here would strike us as odd. We're told back in Luke chapter 2 that when Jesus was a young man, he asked questions of the religious leaders. This is the story where Jesus' parents sort of just leave him and kind of forget where he was and we find he's always oh, with the teachers. And, but Jesus is asking these questions as a young man to these religious leaders with, it seems, zero intimidation. And it's they who are impressed with his learning. And then you flip over a couple pages and in Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins his public ministry and we see Jesus doing battle with Satan in the wilderness. You're hungry. Jesus, skip all this suffering. Just make these stones into bread. Let me give you a kingdom, Satan tempts him. No, no, and no, Jesus says. And later in that same chapter, Jesus preaches to a hostile crowd that at the end of the sermon, they try and throw him off a cliff. (laughs) This is a sermon. And then that very same chapter, Jesus casts out demons. Do you get the idea? He's fearless. He's bold. He's powerful. And his impending death, it didn't catch him off guard. It didn't catch him by surprise. In Luke chapter 9, we read that Jesus says in Luke 9, 51, he sets his face to go towards Jerusalem. Knowing full well what would take place in Jerusalem. He predicted his own death many times in veiled ways. And a handful of times overtly. There's no surprise. But here on the Mount of Olives. In a peaceful garden. Peaceful park. Called the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus the only hero of the story. Is so troubled that an angel must come and strengthen him. As sweat pours off of him like drops of blood. This is odd, isn't it? Why is Jesus in so much agony? Jesus is troubled because he knows what's in the cup. 
Do you? Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. What's in the cup? To answer that question, let me show you just four verses, three from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, that speak of a cup. There's poetic language in each of these passages, but I think the main idea is clear enough. First, we read from Isaiah chapter 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs, the bowl, the cup of staggering. Jeremiah 25, verse 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Now Psalm 75, verse 8. From the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Revelation chapter 14, verse 10. He also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. These are only a few of the verses that say something similar about what's in the cup. There are others, Psalm 11, Psalm 60, Jeremiah 25, a longer passage than the one I read. Also Jeremiah chapter 49, Jeremiah 51, Lamentations chapter 4, Ezekiel chapter 23, Habakkuk chapter 2, Zechariah chapter 12. What's in the cup? The cup in all these passages is the symbolic container of the wrath of God against sin. Again, the... The cup is the symbolic container for the wrath of God against sin. Perhaps we could define the wrath of God this way. The wrath of God is God's intense hatred of sin. So, all the foaming ferocity of the hatred of the almighty creator of the universe, directed at sin, stored up in a cup, the Messiah was about to drink down to the dregs. That's why Jesus was troubled. The idea of the wrath of God troubles us, as it should. But there are better and there are worse ways to deal with it. A few years ago, there was some controversy about a modern hymn, uh, the modern hymn, In Christ Alone by Keith Getty and Stuart Townsend. It's a good song. In fact, I I consider it a great song. We sing it here from time to time. um, but, But this hymn, In Christ Alone, was in the news because a certain denomination voted to exclude it from a forthcoming hymnal they were publishing. And the controversy had to do with this line in the second verse. I'm not sure if it'll be on the screen. Okay, we did get it. It goes like this, till on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. But the committee tasked with creating the hymnal did not know that that was actually the line from the song. 
Um, there was an unauthorized version of the song that was kind of floating around and being sung that had a different line. It says, till on the cross, I think I don't have it written there full, that was my fault, but till on the cross as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. So during the co- hymnal copyright process, the committee learned that the actual line was the first line, um, the one we sing when we sing in Christ alone. And there were some on the hymnals committee, in fact, a majority, that did not like the actual line. So before simply striking the hymn from the hymnal, the committee reached out to the authors and asked if they would allow it to be modified in the version of the song that they wished to publish in their hymnal. And the authors said no. So the committee had a debate. And then when the committee voted, those who said cut it won. And so the hymn was kept from that hymnal, and the 10,000 churches in that denomination at that time who were using that hymnal. There's not 10,000 churches in their denomination anymore. Fewer, actually. And when you think about it, you can't really very well have the love of God without also having the wrath of God. Look at it like this. If you love something... You feel a certain way when what you love is abused and tarnished. If you love a football team, not not to cheapen this incredibly, (laughs) but if you love a football team, you feel a certain way when a call goes against them, especially if that call, you know, influences the outcome of the game. We saw that few cases in this the semifinal games this year leading up to the Super Bowl. And if you love your family, you feel a certain way if and when they're abused. God loves his own glory. And he loves his creation. And when God's glory is belittled and his creation is abused, God feels a certain way about that. The name for the way that God feels is wrath. And the wrath of God is a troubling thing. But for the Christian, for the one who has turned from sin and trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation, the wrath of God has been diverted. Praise God for that. If Jesus drinks down the wrath of God on the cross for our sins, then there's nothing left for you and I. Not a drop has gone unabsorbed. On the cross, the wrath of God is satisfied. And yes, also, the love of God is magnified. At the beginning of the sermon, I made the point that the Gospel of Luke, and as the other Gospels, as it moves towards the cross, it's got a singular focus on the only hero of the story. But that's not to say that you and I are ignored. Look again at verses 40 and then 44 and 45. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter temptation into temptation. Don't you find it wonderful that in his hours of greatest sorrow, Jesus is concerned for others? If 
fact, I think there's a way to say that his greatest hour of agony is concern for others. He's concerned for disciples. He's concerned for us. It's amazing. When we get a toothache, the only person we can think about is us. And his concern leads him to encourage us to be prayerful. It's one of the reasons why, as we've talked about from time to time, our goals over the next five years, I don't know, maybe we're two or three years into them now, one of them has been that we be a a church that increasingly values prayer. But it's difficult to value prayer when you're self-reliant. Say it a different way. Our self-reliance tends to make us spiritually drowsy when we should be most alert. You see, you can learn all the tricks and all the acronyms to prayer, but if you don't feel your dependence, no trick or acronym is going to make you more prayerful. I mean, they're helpful ones. Some of us know the acronym ACTS, right? A, adoration. Praise God for who he is. C, confession. Confess God who we are and how we need his help. T, thanksgiving. Pray with thanksgiving over the things he has done and promises to do. S, supplication. Make your requests known to God. It's a good acronym, but no acronym will make us more prayerful if we don't feel the need to be prayerful. Years ago, I helped a church lead a class, um, a financial class taught by Dave Ramsey via video. And at the beginning of the class, Ramsey says something like, I'm going to teach you how to give and save and spend in ways that honor God. I'll teach you tricks and programs to help you achieve financial peace, which he doesn't define as having lots of money. It's a different thing than having money or lots of it. But then he mentions that none of the tips, none of the programs, none of the strategies that he's going to give to us or whoever would take that class in that class are actually going to do anything if you don't feel the urgency. And he uses this analogy, and it's stuck with me over these years, that suppose you have a child and you learn that your child is sick and in nine months' time you're going to have to have $5,000 cash If that's not the right number for you, insert the number, the right number that is. You're going to have to have $5,000 of cash to pay for that procedure or medicine or whatever it is. Then Ramsey adds, if that's true, then you don't need me to teach you tricks and programs. You're going to take extra jobs. You're going to radically reduce your spending. You're going to sell things that you know are unnecessary. You're going to do everything you need to do because you feel the urgency. He says, I'll teach you some tricks and tips that will help you. But if you don't feel that, they're not going to be helpful. I think it's a bit like that with prayer. As long as we see ourselves as self-reliant, we're going to remain spiritually drowsy and prayerless. In Luke 22, Jesus pleads with the disciples, and I think it's fair that he's pleading with you and I to wake up to this reality, the reality of the gospel, the reality of the wrath of God diverted away from us, the reality of our spiritual dependence, the reality of temptations that come our way as we seek to follow Christ. Things that would make us prone to wonder, prone to leave the God we love, 
This morning, what I want to do is end our service giving you and I time to pray. It always strikes me as odd. Sometimes we will teach about prayer and then like, amen, and we go home. We got time. We got time now. And some of you, there may be areas in your life where you see yourself as self-reliant. You got this. Maybe it's time to confess that to God. Perhaps for others of you, you know you're not a Christian. You're coming here, you're learning, you're wrestling with the gospel, you're trying to understand what it would mean to follow God. And, and, and this would be a great time, perhaps even the time, to become a Christian. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you that you've taken away my sins in the cross. I want to trust you. I want to follow you. Change my heart. For others, you feel a certain temptation in a particular area. And this is time. You can use this time to ask for the Lord's help. Let me just say this. If in the moments when Jesus was in his greatest agony, he had concern for others... Surely, now that he has paid expensively for our sins, rose again victoriously on the third day, ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of his Father, how will he not now delight to help you and I as we seek to follow him? How would he not be overjoyed to help you in every struggle that you and I come into as we seek to follow the Lord? Our dependence is not a problem to the Lord. But he does want us to be prayerful. I'm going to lead out in prayer, invite the worship team to come back up. We'll have maybe two, three, four, five minutes, I don't know, to pray. As you're led quietly where you're at, Music team will, will lead a kind of a song instrumentally, and then they'll lead us in a song together where we can celebrate the gospel as we close. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, it is good news that when we should be more concerned about ourselves, <laughs> you are concerned for us. And isn't that the gospel? You substituting yourself in our place on our behalf. Lord, I don't know what's going on in the lives of everyone here in the church. I know a handful of things. I know enough to know that there are bigger things in front of us than we can handle. But in you and in your strength, we are strong. Lord, I pray now that you would enable us to have the faith to trust you and to confess and, and cast all our anxiety on you, knowing that you care for us. Mm-hmm.